This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb. We have an unreal show for you today. We have James Goodman with an incredible book, a discussion that you're not going to want to miss. And, you know, I've now decided that he is my best friend. Uh, He's amazing. And we're going to get to all of that. But first, uh, a bit about what we do here. Ancient tradition divides up the Bible into 54 portions, just about one for each week of the year. So each week, we take a look at one portion and identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it. So let's dive right into this week's portion, which is basically Genesis chapters 18 through 22. In Hebrew, this portion is called Vayera, which means uh, in ancient biblical Hebrew, and he appeared. Because this whole section of the book of Genesis is all about the different ways in which God appeared to the biblical patriarch Abraham and the different ways that Abraham engaged with God. The central episode of this section is probably one of the most famous stories in the history of world literature, The Binding of Isaac. It's an incredibly perplexing tale. Basically, God grants a child to Abraham and his wife and partner, Sarah, and they name him Isaac, and they're happy for a time. But then, out of nowhere, God appears to Abraham and demands that he slaughter Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice. And it seems like a a crazy thing for God to require. Now, the Hebrew Bible tells us, the readers, that God was testing Abraham. But Abraham himself doesn't know this, and he lived in a time when child sacrifice was well known, so this was deadly serious. Anyway, somehow Abraham steals himself, and he's about to go through with it. A command from God is a command from God after all. But then, at the last moment, just as he's about to bring the knife down, God tells Abraham to stop. And it's like, psych, actually, don't kill him. Everything's going to be fine. Oh my God, you should have seen your face. Classic, right? Like... It's like a terrible prank. Like, why would God do this? Now, in fact, thinkers of many different faiths, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, have been bothered by this very question for centuries upon centuries. Some of the greatest religious thinkers in history have struggled with this. And I want to call your attention to one of the lesser known but most profound of these interpretations, and it's the one that was advanced by the ancient rabbis. The ancient rabbis imagined a conversation between God and Abraham in the aftermath of the story, basically right after God stops Abraham from actually sacrificing Isaac. And it goes like this. Abraham goes, "Um, God, did you doubt that I would pass this test? And God responds, no, I actually had no doubts at all. In fact, (laughs) I knew before I even tested you that you would do it. So then Abraham says, but then why even put me through this in the first place? And God replies, look, I knew you'd be willing to go through with it, but I wanted the world to know that you'd be willing to go through with it. Now, hold on. Why would God want the world to know that Abraham was willing to kill his own child? Isn't child sacrifice bad? I mean, the Bible itself says this. In fact, the Hebrew Bible was the first tradition in the ancient world to absolutely, unconditionally condemn child sacrifice in other places and abolish it completely, right? So what gives? And the answer is that the Bible wants us to know that the reason child sacrifice is wrong is because it's murder. It's a violation of universal human dignity and the divine image each of us bears, and it's a complete red line. 
but by being willing to do it, by showing that he was capable of it, Abraham showed that he was willing to lose everything he loved in the name of a higher purpose. Now, that sense of submission, of obedience to a higher cause can be a bad thing. History has certainly proven that, and that's why it needs limits like the prohibition against murder. But that willingness to surrender everything in the name of something more important can be a crucial, courageous, and wonderful thing. And the Hebrew Bible wants its readers to know that Abraham, its first real hero, was capable of that. And it wants us to be capable of it too. Now look, I know this feels deeply contrary to the values of contemporary society because we live in a world built by Hollywood and there's nothing we love more than a happy ending, right? We need Jim to end up with Pam and we find it like totally irrational to think that (laughs) Jim might just accept that Pam's with someone else. But we all know that usually the Jim and Pams of the world, the Sam and Diane's of the world don't end up together. We don't live scripted lives with satisfying season finales built in. And that's where the values of submission and obedience and faith come in. Those are the traits that help us be okay. They're what help us be strong when things don't go perfectly. When Ross doesn't end up with Rachel, which is most of the time. In the face of disappointment, even very terrible and unfair-seeming disappointment, it's important to recall the Abraham inside all of us. And remember that we're each a lot stronger, a lot more capable of coping, than we might give ourselves credit for. Now, look, any way you slice it, the binding of Isaac is a really hard story to figure out. Now, I gave you one interpretation advanced by the ancient rabbis, but there are so many more. And so to help us break them all down, I brought on James Goodman, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author and professor of history and creative writing at Rutgers University, who wrote an incredible book called But Where is the Lamb? all about the many different interpretations of the Binding of Isaac story across the centuries, from ancient Israel to the Christian Bible to Bob Dylan. James, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. We talked a little bit pre-show, and I already feel like we've been best friends for years. (laughs) So uh, I'm really excited to have you on. And I actually really just want to start first uh, with you. You know, I mean, you're not the person that I would have assumed would write this book, right? You wrote a great book on the case of the Scottsboro Boys. You wrote a book on the blackout of 1977 in New York City. So you're kind of right in the zone of modern American history. So how do you go from there to thinking about and writing about a biblical story? Well, it's a story like just about everything else. Now we're talking. (laughs) I had finished uh, my book on the blackout in uh, 2003 and I was looking for another subject for a book, doing what, uh, you know, scholars and writers do, reading. And it was the end of the first year of the second Iraq war. It wasn't going so well. There was a huge insurgency against our occupation. And as I was doing my reading, everywhere I turned, I was reading the word sacrifice. And not just sacrifice, but child sacrifice. People on both sides of the debate, the debate about whether or not we should continue on in Iraq or just cut our losses and withdraw, people on both sides of the debate were accusing the other side of sacrificing children. People were accusing the parents of suicide bombers of sacrificing children. People were accusing our generals and soldiers of sacrificing children. And sacrifice and child sacrifice were in the air. 
And I do what uh, scholars and, and writers do. I started reading about it. And the more I read about it, the more I realized, oh my heavens, there's a story here. And at sort of ground zero of any story of sacrifice is this biblical story of Abraham and Isaac, which of course I knew from the Torah. And of course, I remember reading about in my Hebrew school textbook, the story of the Jew, but I didn't have a clue of the depth and the range of stories over 2000 years. I should add that both of my previous books about the blackout and about Scottsboro were about the way experience is constituted in the conflict among people with different stories about what happens in their lives and what it means. And here was a story, a conflict among people with different stories about the interpretation of the story that was too thousand years old, at least, probably older, but the record of people responding to the biblical story is about 2,000, 2,200 years old. I mean, we're like, we're talking about like the Mount Rushmore of stories. Also, there's like Romeo and Juliet, the Buddha, there's the binding of Isaac. Absolutely. It is the story that each of the three monotheistic religions can't get around. If you'll allow a baseball metaphor, this is the show for baseball metaphors. Let's go. <laughs> they used to say that eventually after 1918, the Red Sox would eventually win another World Series. But to get there, they had to go through the Yankees. It wouldn't be real if they didn't go through the Yankees. Well, for Jews, Christians, and Muslims, they can't get to where all three of them in their own way want to go without going through the binding of Isaac. Listen, as a lifelong Yankees fan, that's obviously a very painful analogy for me. <laughs> However, if you want any example in modern history of how <laughs> fate, destiny, and sort of prophetic reality are just part of our lives, I mean, how could you script it better than that? You, know? you can't. <laughs> the binding of Isaac is the Yankees, and the and the Red Sox had to go through it to get to the, their promised land. Uh, and uh, and so, so I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to write a book about not the stories of Scottsboro or the stories of the blackout looting, but the, the stories of the binding of Isaac. And I knew so little, I have to confess, I'm a U.S. historian, um, a, a humanist, secular, cultural Jew. I knew so little that I didn't know how insane it was to try to do this. I didn't know at that point what I didn't know. Five or six years later, I realized that was about halfway through the project. I realized how insane it was. But by that time, I was too stubborn to stop. But there was lots of time between like year six or year five and year eight where I thought, this is just crazy. I mean, that's amazing. You know, as a scholar, that every page of my book, every interpretation in every moment in those 2000 years, you could dig down deep and just write a monograph about those. And I know that. And yet I know I have to move on if I'm going to ever finish this book. So as you said, you know, you're coming from sort of a scholarly background, secular humanist, cultural Jew, someone like me, you know, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I grew up studying these texts in the original Hebrew when I was, you know, when I was four. Yes. Um, before we get to your incredible book, and I think this is the perfect segue. So I want to make the case 
to your average person without those kinds of backgrounds mm-hmm. for picking up a copy of the book, right? So you're not a theologian, you're not a scholar, you're just a regular person living your life. And let's say, you know, you are you may be someone who cares what the Bible has to say, but hey, look, the Bible's pretty big, mm-hmm. right? So why should I be especially interested in the story of the binding of Isaac? Because for every reason under the sun. On the one hand, if you love literature, It is one of the most magnificent examples of what literature can do. 19 lines, every one of which raises more questions than it answers. 19 lines in which there are libraries of books between the line. I mean, you know, Eric Auerbach, that first chapter of his great book on the history of representation in Western literature. I mean, the unsaid in this story, if you like poetry, if you like short stories or novels that end and you said, what just happened? And you go back and you start it again in the same way observant Jews, when they get to the end of Yom Kippur, just get ready the last moment to start the whole thing again. That's what you do when you read this story. So it's just what you're interested in literature, but all the way on another place in the spectrum. If you're interested in theology, if you are interested in God, if you are interested in relationship between God and human beings, it raises the most profound religious and spiritual and theological and ethical questions that human beings ever ask and have been asking for all these years. And that's part of the reason people ask me, why this story? Why out of all those pages of Torah, is this the story that just keeps us going back to it? It's partly because it's great literature, but there's other great literature we could read. It's because it asks the most fundamental questions about being a Jew or being for Christians, being a Christian, or Muslims for being a Muslim, or for secular people for being a human being. It doesn't matter. And, you know, when I write about Scottsboro or I write about the blackout, the stories that interest me most are not the ones that are most like who I am today or in the late 90s when I was a graduate student working on that, or the ones that get me most excited are the ones you grew up with. It's coming to terms with John Levinson or Leibowitz, the Israeli scientist, in his thinking about the story and Judaism and the relationship between religion and the state or or Bob Dylan. I mean, or that's... Bob Dylan or Bob Dylan, whose version of a people misunderstand, I think. They think that his is somehow an anti-religion verse, and I don't read it that way at all. Oh, we're going to talk about Bob Dylan. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Good, 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 good. So it's those. It's coming to terms with people. And in fact, I finished my book in a very different place than I started because, as I said, I was starting it in the context of sacrifice, and I was against the war in Iraq. And I was learning all this stuff at the very time all those people called the New Atheists were making a mint on books like The God Delusion and and, uh, Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great. I, in all sorts of ways, would have thought I was going to be 
sympathetic to that kind of point of view. But that came out just as I was two or three or four years into reading all this biblical interpretation. And I realized instantly that they didn't know a thing about what they were talking about. They knew nothing about the richness and the variety and the fluidity. They thought they were the first people to read Genesis 22 and have questions about it. And I said, no, no, there's no record of a time in human history when people were reading this story and they weren't having questions about it. That's a great point. And by the way, that is a perfect place to come into your book, because what I love so much about it is that it's actually not about the binding of Isaac per se, because you're not writing a biblical commentary and you're not writing as a biblical historian either. Right. Like you're not trying to figure out like what really happened, like someone who would be writing about the early church, let's say. Right. The questions you're interested in would be how did different thinkers, cultures, even religions throughout the centuries tell this story and make it meaningful. So why is it so important for us to think about all the different ways people remember the binding of Isaac? Because you have to understand that people have been wrestling with this for all these years, and the most devout people who ever lived have been coming up with different answers to these questions. And it's the debate that is so important. Yes, come up with your interpretation and live by it. And even if you want, try to persuade other people that it's the way it should be understood. But remember that it's a debate and that what we think of as tradition is a debate and what as we think of as history as a debate. So it's my way of showing the fluidity of tradition. I mean, you can't imagine how little I, I knew when I started this, the way that the rabbis celebrate tradition by re shaping it when they feel it needs to be reshaped. Midrash was like a genetic forefather of my belief in the power of literature and belief itself and and the Torah itself, the degree to which that revision exists within the Torah itself. Instead of getting rid of an old version of a story when there was a new way of thinking things, they left several of them right in there for readers to have to grapple with. And in many ways, when when, uh, people say, you know, what, what is this test about in the binding of Isaac? The test is all kinds of different tests, but in many ways, the story itself is a test to us. Each of us was tested. Abraham was tested to be sure, and Isaac was tested to be sure, and in lots of the stories, Sarah was tested. But every time you open that book to chapter 22, we are all tested as readers, as Jews, as human beings, and it's the most magnificent thing that 2,200 years, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad, they're great books. They don't test us in the way that the Torah tests us in all, not just in this story, but this one starts with a test. So it's a test on many levels. And, you know, that kind of raises for me, you know, one of the the interpretations that you go through in your book, because, you know, anyone who picks up your book and everyone should pick it up, they're going to be taken on a tour of thousands of years of ancient Jews, rabbis, Christian thinkers, Muslim thinkers, contemporary philosophers, all 
as you said, kind of wrestling with this text, asking questions about it. The one that intrigued me the most, and I, I've actually thought about it for years because I'm a Bob Dylan fan, <laughs> is Bob Dylan's version of the story in Highway 61 Revisited. And you alluded to this earlier, but you know that version of the story, and I'll just kind of, for listeners, kind of give you the lyrics quickly, right? The beginning of that song, it's kind of this rock and roll blues it's got like a pol- you know it's got this like police siren sounding thing at the beginning it's like fast it's choppy it's amazing uh here's dylan's version of the binding of isaac oh god said to abraham kill me a son abe said man you must be putting me on god said no abe said what god says you can do what you want abe but the next time you see me coming you better run well abe says where you want this killing done god says out on highway 61 so james goodman What's your hot take on that song, on that part of the song? Well, unlike many of my friends who think that Dylan is criticizing the story as sort of like a very early new atheist criticism story, I don't think so. I think it is a very traditional reading of the story. This is why we're going to be friends, because you need some (laughs) friends who are right about Bob Dylan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that what Dylan is saying there is, you know, is what John Levinson is saying there is a traditional interpretation is saying there. God says, do it, you do it. You know, at first thing he says, you know, whoa, what's going on here? What do you mean? But when God gets serious with him, you see me, you better run. So here's my take on it. I'm curious what you think. So the whole song, Highway 61, right, in both in Dylan's imagination and in the larger history of the blues, of the Delta tradition, Highway 61 is, you know, first of all, it's this highway that runs from like Duluth all the way down to the to the Deep South. It's this place that has loomed large in the imagination of blues guitarists and musicians for forever. You know, it's the crossroads of Highway 61 where Robert Johnson, you know, sells his soul to the devil for the ability to play guitar like nobody's business. So Highway 61 is like this mythical place where great mysterious and elusive journeys begin. And I always had this feeling, and I'm curious what you think. Abraham doesn't understand the command to kill his son. And he he says, you know, man, you must be putting me on. But at the end of the day, you know, he says, OK, as you said, you know, obedience is obedience. Got to get it done. And where is the, you know, where do I have to do it? Out on Highway 61. Because as you said before, The Binding of Isaac is not a story about Abraham. It's a story about all of us. And it's a story about our journey, our mysterious, elusive journey with this story and and with God and with sort of ourselves and our own values, right? What do you think about that? That's always been my take on the song. That's completely consistent with my take on this song. Abraham doesn't know what this is about. He just does it. After a little bit of give and take with God, he just does it. And that is, in my mind, the ancient Jewish version of the story. In fact, I teased John Levinson just a little bit for suggesting that Abraham knew that it was his turn to sacrifice his child when God called. And I said, John, and I say it in my book, but I've said it to him in person. And John, so and John Levinson that. is a great scholar of Jewish thought. Thank you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I said, Joe, no, you're going too far there. Abraham didn't know what was going on. He just did what God asked him to do. And that is so critical because Christians, in my mind, are going to actually soften the story 
by suggesting that Abraham knew that God would keep his promise regardless of whether or not he ended up sacrificing Isaac. This was them just turning obedience into faith. And in my mind, it's an interesting twist. And and, and you do have it in Jewish tradition also, right? You have Jewish thinkers who say, well, Abraham must have known, right? Because God promised him that his line would continue through Isaac. He must have somehow just had some faith that this would end well, right? So, But you're right. You do have that, that kind of softening of it. Yeah. And those Jewish thinkers come after Christianity almost exclusively. I mean, that's the thing. The Jewish and Christian interpreters, which is another magnificent thing about this story, because when I was raised in a conservative Jewish culture context in the 1960s, Jews and Christians had nothing to do with one another. Our parents and our rabbis did not want us to know. I was in graduate school before I even realized there were different sects of Christianity. I just thought <laughs> I just thought there were Jews and Christians. But part of the fascination of it is how intertwined Judaism and Christianity were for centuries, centuries. So the bishops are having to tell their people not to go to seders and celebrate Passover, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my sense is that originally, and again, this is just my sense, but I'm with Bob Dylan and you on this, that this was a story of obedience without really fully knowing what God intended, but you just do it. I, I love it. And so, you know, if I can get, you know, one last uh, uh, question, that, and yeah. that is, we live in a a highly individualistic culture. And and that can often be a good thing, right? It's helped us achieve a lot, but certainly words like obedience or faith, right? Words that we've been using to describe the Jewish and Christian interpreters are increasingly foreign, I think, to the American or Western vocabulary. But then along comes 2020 and all of a sudden we find ourselves completely at the mercy of terrible, impersonal forces that can make us feel helpless is 2020 in some ways a reminder that values like faith and obedience in the face of great difficulty and tragedy can be really important, right? Like, is the story of the binding of Isaac especially important in 2020? Oh, I think it is. Again, I know I sound like I'm taking both sides of every issue, but on the one hand, it is a year that we have to think about faith because on some days there's nothing that we can have but faith and certain things are out of our hands. On the other hand, it is a year that we have to think about sacrifice, whether it be the smallest sacrifice of wearing a mask, not for ourselves, but for others, for larger sacrifices that we need to make for our community. And it's a year without community of sacrifice, of sometimes obedience, right? We'd all like to decide whether we wear a mask or not, or whether we eat indoors or not, or whether we gather with 30 or more people or not. But all these things, obedience, faith, sacrifice, community, are all things that come up in the reading of this story each time we look at it. That's amazing. James, thank you so much for being on Good Faith Effort. I am thrilled to have been with you, and I'm so appreciative that you asked me to come on. Look, 2020 has been a really tough year. 
I lost loved ones that I miss terribly, and many people suffered much worse, and I'm sure you all have your own stories. Now, there's a lot about our lives that we can control, and thank God for that, but there's an awful lot that we can't, and the most advanced scientific breakthroughs in the world won't change that. Now, we can rage against the injustice of it all and struggle against our own human imperfections, but sometimes what we really need is a little more faith and a little more obedience to withstand anything that life can throw at us. This has been Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.